Good morning, food lovers everywhere and diners and travelers around the globe. Uh, you're listening to On the Menu with Anne and Peter Haig. And one of the best parts of this job is, of course, meeting extraordinary people. And we're going to bring you interviews with two of them today. Um, since Peter is actually a Brit, <laughs> I'm going to let him introduce our first guest, um, and go ahead, because you, you have all the right um, pronunciations and intuitions about this. Okay, so, so Peter gets the wonderful task of introducing the Countess of Carnarvon, who is best known to people around the world as the owner and operator of Downton Abbey, a cult, shall we say, definitely a cult program around, around the world. And it turns out, turns out that in addition to being a cult person around the world, she's also very interested in, in the gardens surround well, Downton Abbey. Let's be clear, and, and, however, no, I don't mean the clear. The, the property itself is high clear, which has been in her husband's family for years. And it was used as a setting for Yes, yeah, yes, okay. okay. That, I should, I should have said that, I guess. But nevertheless, anyway. Here's, here's the Countess telling her story. Yeah, we're going to be talking to the Countess of Carnarvon, which I think we're going to call you Lady Carnarvon. That's it. Perfect. Good. And we you wrote this the, book. We don't have the pronunciation quite right. Okay, do, do, tell me do about Do the that. pronunciation for us exactly it's correctly. Can, well, in England, it's Carnarvon, but in America, it's slightly different. But in England, it's Carnarvon. Okay, Carnarvon it will be then, since I'm married to an Englishman. <laughs> <laughs> no, you, you wrote this book, Seasons at High Clear, and uh, this is the latest of your books, but you've written a whole bunch of books, haven't you? I've thoroughly enjoyed writing the books. There's so much to share, to share from High Clear, so it's a joy to find different ways of doing it. And this one, again, I think is very visual with some beautiful photographs. And again, this is a really interesting format, and the publishers have been very generous just letting me go ahead and trusting me to produce what I think is beautiful. So it's, a, it's um, well, it, it quite is. a project. Well, it is. Resolute is who you're talking about, um, and, and it, the photographs are just heavenly. Yeah, oh, I mean, thank you. It's enough to um, make now, me... Now, here's the real question. How How much of... Downton Abbey is real. How how much of it is is people acting out yeah. things that actually happened? Well, you you better say that the reason you're asking that question is that the, this um, manor house in the state was actually this place where um, Downton Abbey was was oh, yeah. uh, filmed. Well, the the other thing that's interesting is this this program on on television was is a cult. If you'll pardon me saying so, Countess. Well, I'm delighted. I, th I think in some ways Downton Abbey has become a cult. And one reason that it's been so successful is because one of the cast of the characters is an amazing house which holds its own through every series and through the film. And I think Seasons at Highclere, I hope, is a gift, um, a good gift, both from a gift that I wanted to write, to share, and I hope it's a very good gift for people to buy, to share. 
because it's it's an anchor in a very um, broken and fragile world at the moment, which we're all trying to work out how to put back together. But I wanted to go back in time and just just share some stories and narratives because there has been a home here for at least 1,300 years. So that's and by using the format of the seasons, it just allowed me to share, I think, you know, a sense of reassurance. If you look backwards, sometimes you give more hope that you can analyze where you are and then look forward. Because <laughs> it's survived, it's been recycled, transformed, rebuilt, but it's still here, which is great. So the, pe- well, so, the pe- so the people are real, but are the, are the, pe- are the people who portray them are actors and actresses. So there's right? a difference. There's a very big difference between Highclere and the reality of the stories, which are shared yeah. within seasons at Highclere, and sure. the fictional book, uh, the fictional the, the fictional stories, which are deliberately different. You know, so they are the creation of Julian Fellows. They are not the reality, but there are some themes and some stories and some narratives to which we all relate because we've all gone through the challenges faced by Bates and Anna or Lord or Lady Grantham or, you know, what's happened to Mrs. Patmore, the cook. And it's from all walks of life. So we all relate to them, but they are works of fiction. And Julian Fellows is a very good friend and knows some of the stories that actually have happened, but then takes it away into a fictional world. So the reality is different. In reality, Highclere is bigger than Downton Abbey. It's not a manor house, it's a castle. It has between 250 and 300 rooms. In the days when Downton Abbey began, um, Highclere had a house steward, a butler, an under-butler, a 14-footman, a hallroom boy, and a steward-room boy. And in Downton Abbey, it's just two or three. But you know, there's ways of making it um, watchable on television. And you, it's got a cast of 18, and Julian's amazing the way he weaves their lives together, and you worry about what's going to happen to them, and you want to watch the next series. So there, there is a big difference there. And I also wanted to show the the longevity of the home, because I think many people think it's quite modern, which of course it is, and yet it's not. And, you know, I also wanted to share the gardens, which you see less of in Downton Abbey, because they're further away and there's so much going on. And I wanted to share the farm, because I think we're all now being asked to think about how we live, what we grow, what we eat, what we cook, and how we can tread lightly on this earth. So, so you are real. You're one of the real people? Well, I think I'm one of the real people, and there's a very real cast here. So, yes, thank you. Let's give our our listeners, first of all, can you pinpoint exactly where in England you're located? Highclere Castle lies 60 miles west of London. Um, To the north of us is Oxford. To the south of us is Winchester. And we're about 40 miles from Heathrow. So it's a very, fortunately for us, convenient place for visitors to come and um, look around the castle or to do tours. And it's, it's very central and very accessible. So we are most fortunate with a good railway station nearby and, and options with cars and everything else. So we're lucky. We are very lucky to be so close to London. Well, let's give also our listeners a sense of scale. Um, you you list uh, how many acres? You did list something in acres, didn't you? There's a thousand acres of parkland around the house. 
and then we farm another four or five thousand acres of woodland and arable. So there's about two thousand acres of arable and three thousand acres of downland and woodland, which is breathing space for nature rather than us. Whereas on the arable, we're trying to grow crops such as wheat or barley or oats, which we eat. All of us in this country, those main crops, they are our staple crops. Yeah. Well, now, I, when I started talking to you initially, I said I've read the book and I'm exhausted. And, and I didn't mean from reading the, the book. I meant just the idea of, of what it means for you and Jordy to have to uh, maintain this property. And you list all the chores you face every season of the year. Well, I think it's a privilege to live here and it's a responsibility and somehow you need to live every day and enjoy each day and then plan and prepare and in that way it's possible to go forward. So it's a mixture and sometimes it does seem overwhelming and it has been a a hugely challenging time for the last 18 months because we are such a real place and... Um, we rely on people actually coming here like many other stately homes or built more in America. And, of course, like such heritage hospitality um, areas of business, we were closed down for much of the last 18 months. So it's been interesting how you put yourself back together again. Now, how large a staff do you have? Um, usually too small. <laughs> so, <laughs> what? Really? Um, too small. Um, <laughs> Usually not enough. I mean, I, I don't really know. There's a lot of, there's quite a lot of part-time people, quite a lot of full-time people. It does kind of vary according to the time of year. But, you know, we've always got four chefs and four in the banqueting team who butler for us if we are welcoming some friends. But otherwise they are forming the banqueting team and then the office staff and four gardeners. Perhaps the number is four, actually, overall. Yes. <laughs> And then Amazing. 40 or 50 part-time guards and the f guys in the farm. So it's, it's, an, it's, a, it's a team that expands and contracts, but it is a team, and that's rather wonderful. Now, can, pe can people actually stay with you? They can't stay in the castle. We have got two um, 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 lodges in which people can rent, which is very nice, I hope. So, but they can't actually stay with us here in the castle. No, I mean, are, are, I, had another, I had another, I had another question. For yeah, you. go ahead. Let me, let me get this one out of the way. We we've been to many of the stately homes of England, including mag truly magnificent places like Chatsworth. Yep. But and and all of all of them that we've been to have faced this problem of how to finance the ongoing operation or the ongoing living on the estates often they've had to do a deal with the with the government to pay their taxes with with some of their possessions because they because it's just too expensive to run a place like this now how have you managed it seems seems to us from reading the book that you must have a magic potion i I don't think I do. I mean, like the other big estates in this country, such as Blenheim and Burley and um, the great castles, where they're deemed of national importance, you're right. We have all done a deal with the tax office, if we were able to, and historic England. And death duties are held over if we open the castle to the public. 
It's a very fair deal and it ensures that these houses stay intact and the possessions which were collected and bought for it stay within the setting for which they were designed or bought. So in that way, um, it's a very fair deal and that's why we are all open and I'm very conscious of the privilege, as I said, and having said that, the death duties don't evaporate, they're there. So it's like a sword of Damocles <laughs> in order to do that. So you firstly, to my mind, accept that, and which obviously I do. Then I try to work um, in tandem, and I've welcomed the tax man, historically, and everyone else down there, because I think that's important. We are in partnership together, and then it's a business. So what I've done is thought in my head with my husband, Jordi, what are we going to do? What is the meaning of a stately home? How can we welcome people here? What is going to engage with them? Why will they love it or not? What's going to bring them here? So that is always the question, which is, that's where I started. And that was my thoughts when I was thinking about how we went forward, how we can engage and then the second thing is it's a business. You have to think it is a business and one in which you need to engage with your heart and your head because you can't wish you didn't have to have visitors here. You need to enjoy it and you need to give that sense of, of joy to the team you're working with. So it's, So the whole thing is positive. And then having set off with the right tone and attitude, then you can see what you can do. So that's what we do. And every day we, we are, you know, we need to bring in revenue to pay the salaries first of all. So that's what matters to pay the people who work here. Well, now but, you were, yeah. you, you, you were raised, were you, as a country person? Were you? I've lived in London, and um, I, I went to school in London, but we spent a lot of time in Cornwall. So. Um, we have relatives in Cornwall. Yeah. We're at St. Agnes every year at Christmas. Yeah. Um, so, but you work with, you seem to know what you're doing about everything. I mean, the animals, of which you quite a lot. Um, even um, you, um, you mushroom, hunt, you forage things. Um, you, you seem really at home in the woods, or in the, the countryside. I mean, I think that it's a specific personality and set and skill set to be able to do that. How did you do um, it? I think I have always, I've always enjoyed the countryside, and I was lucky to be brought up. You know, I, I think we can all learn so much from walking through the trees and knowing when you look at a tree how to tell where south is, or when you're, you know, walking along a path to look for signs of the moss or the lichen or whatever you want to look for. It's knowing the names of things. This is what our ancestors knew. This is where the roots of our race are or were. And this is what can give us some health and some sense of solace and, and nurturing nature. And we should be out walking. The land of desks and grayness is a new concept so I think I like having meetings outside. I think it's better to walk and to talk. And I have no intention of going back ever into grey boardrooms. They do not help at oh, all. Oh, yes. I mean, that, that sounded just dreary for somebody who likes the nature as much as you do. Now, let's get back to the book. I mean, you take us through um, the, the different seasons, um, what, what 
the, the land gives you in each season, things that you are required to do with each season, and um, recipes for each season and occasion. Tell us a little bit more about your book. Oh, well, thank you. I mean, it's, <laughs> I, I just wanted to share medieval times and how people lived here in the 13th century and 14th century. So I decided to look at autumn, which is the season we're in now, around the idea of a medieval barn, which was last refurbished in 1438, but George and I are doing it again now, but using the same wood. And I wanted to think about, you know, the, the bounty from the land that we gather in and what some of the best and yummiest things to eat. And we eat with our eyes and we need to eat well because that's going to help protect us and give us greater immunity as we fight off colds and flu and everything else. So I, and I, so I started to write down everything which people might have eaten over the ages in autumn that could be grown here. So I, I, that's what I did. I started writing down, you know, medlars, crab apples, quinces, pears, apples, you know, and all the different vegetables and the root vegetables and then all the different animals. And I began to work out some of the best seasons for each of them and then around each season create the story and the narrative both then and now. So, um, yeah, it's been, it's been a fun thing to do. Now, you've de- you delved a great deal into the history of the property. Um, some some things were easy to find out about, and other things were left unanswered for you, right? Some things are much harder to find than others. Yes, <laughs> right, definitely. So, but but it's amazing. It just takes a bit of time, and then sometimes you have a bit of luck, which is great. Uh-huh. Yeah, you you, know, you, you suddenly read a letter, documents. or you open. Yes, you sometimes open. Um, you know, you open a box and you get lucky or something else happens. It's just amazing. So it's, you, it's just lovely to get lucky, actually, sometimes. And I found some uh, memoirs from the gardener here in 1908, and that's how he, they wrote. There were a 100 gardeners working here and then. And also about the special train which used to take the vegetables around to win the best-in-class show, which I thought was just magic <laughs> now did, did the did the knights actually meet around a round table in winchester i don't know about that you know there are some lovely there are some lovely myths and goodness knows what stories but yeah, i don't mean pretend, they certainly pretend that that's what happened well they do isn't it? i mean winchester cathedral um the, the same stonemasons and joiners were um, employed by the bishops of Winchester both here and in New College Oxford and in Winchester Cathedral in the 13th and 14th century. So there are links to there. And obviously the round table was um, a couple of hundred years before that and, you know, written up. I'm not sure whether it was legend or myth and it might have been blown out of a smaller story into a bigger story out of proportion, mm-hmm. but it's a great story. There's still a big, there's still a big statue of King Alfred Yes, well, no, King Alfred was definitely um, there. King Alfred definitely lived there from 849, and he died in 899. But it was King Arthur and the Knights of the Round Table who's more legendary figure between Cornwall and Wessex. But it, always, King Alfred I always, was there. I always wondered, by the way, why, why somebody entitled a song, a popular song, Winchester Cathedral? Oh, I don't know that one. <laughs> I don't know that one. 
this was done was recorded by a rock band of some kind. Quite, quite why they picked on Winchester Cathedral, I'm not sure. Well, it's a very beautiful, beautiful building. Yes, it is. Now you have um, you have some interesting um, pieces of your your land. Uh, I was very taken with your comments about your walled garden, and when we were when I was in um, elementary school. Um, we had to choose our favorite book and uh, and do an illustration of it and a book report on it. And mine was The Secret Garden. And I kept <laughs> thinking back to that. <laughs> I know. Well, The Secret Garden is a really special area, actually. And um, it, it always delights at every time of year. And at the moment, as we go into autumn and winter, we're beginning to cut back and plan what we're going to do for next spring and summer. So it's an exciting time of year to see what we can order and what might come in. It is rather wonderful. But meanwhile, you're getting um, a lot of zucchini. <laughs> yes, we are. <laughs> and actually, a lot of cucumbers at the moment. So I'm full of tzatziki and things like that. Uh-huh. Now, um, I'm, making. The, I'm going to ask you to, to uh, mm-hmm. talk about some of your, um, your, your recipes in a minute. But I wanted to, um, to say I was very impressed with um, the here's this issue of course of climate change and the climate of England um, has changed very dramatically since I first uh, frequented the country and um, and you mentioned that you actually are actually planting champagne grapes now and you're friends with the Perrier family well it's you're completely correct. We planted a vineyard in the old walled garden. Having said that, you know, there was huge frost this year, which um, destroyed the grape harvest in great swathes of France and also knocked off probably half the grapes where we are, despite our best efforts to save them. And we did not have enough sun this year. We had hardly any sun through the whole of August, hardly any hours at all. So the grapes never ripened. So yes, we've planted it, but this was not a good year. But equally well, it's, it's it's, I hope, an interesting additional um, source of interest for visitors. It's not our main business in France. It's their main business. So it's definitely yeah, they, sad. Burgundy to them. really suffered, I believe, in France this year. That's yeah. And and you've also had your share of um, like the what's the the elm disease and, and a lot of the ancient no. trees are gone. But you still have a lot of very old trees. We do, but it's very sad. You know, um, mankind is changing the planet too fast for the partners with which it lives in this world to survive. So it is entirely our fault, and that is very sad. It is. Um, What about some of these recipes? Could you just tell our listeners about some of your favorite um, that you you kind of discovered? I was interested that you had not just the traditional English recipes, but you also seem to have uh, influences from other places like the Middle East and so forth. Well, yes. I mean, I in if I if I look at what's in autumn, actually, I I did an Instagram video of the celery, grape, and walnut salad because that is just delicious, and it contributes so strongly to all that we do with live with the fantastic dressing, which is 
live yogurt and Dijon mustard. It works incredibly well together. That's great. So that was that's a delicious salad. I mean, I've chosen some of the British fish and seafood that we can find naturally in the waters around us. Yeah, do, where um, do you get oysters? I mean, you have you love oysters. Where do you oh, get I them? love oysters. Well, I do if too. I'm down in if I'm down in Cornwall, <laughs> from Cornwall, of course. But it's, um, <laughs> so, you know, there's, there's, they're they're successfully grown and farmed there, and they are completely scrummy. And in terms of the Middle East influence, well, I. Um, my one of my I love lamb and quince tangine and it's just yes such, I saw that such a nice mixture and I think quince is not used enough and it's a it's not too sweet it's a really interesting addition to the tangine so that's quite fun and um, then I've introduced I think people to something called tomb which many of you may not have tried <laughs> which Never. I love which is in the winter and. That's there because one of my sisters, my number six sister, and um, her husband. There are six of you. you there you are and six five of sisters. Her. That's yeah. amazing. It's great. So there's a few fun things in winter. There's a lovely winter vegetable curry, and I think that works really well. And again, we're all trying not to eat meat every day. It's delicious. It's You can also use the vegetables that you have, but. I really like to make sure I do include some um, cauliflower and sweet potato and some things like that. It is a great mixture. And yeah, um, You seem to eat very healthily, actually. <laughs> well, you know, it's good not to eat meat every day, so that's just one, one alternative. And then I think going through last winter, not all of us, we, we, we were all g- gathering our vaccine later on in 2021, and and I decided to include a recipe for tomb, which is an amazing garlic sauce, which I absolutely adore. So I'm always making it in the winter. Raw garlic has just such strong antibacterial properties for us all. Yeah. You would not um, go along with the queen on that. <laughs> no, no, she doesn't. I, she's an amazing no lady. No garlic she, in the cast. She yeah. doesn't have good garlic, but but everybody has their different opinions, and I'm not sure I'd have this before, obviously, going out to dinner with some of the smart place, but it is <laughs> incredibly positive. It is, it's, a very, it's, a, it's a really delicious um, um, dip, basically, and it combines some very useful properties which help support our lungs and our breathing and respiratory system sometimes is the worst time of year. And I think you know, if we eat well, it can help our immune system fight off colds and flus. So that's what I was trying to say as well. Eat with the seasons. Um, there are some things which are fun and delicious, like pancakes, you know, and things yeah, like that, or banana bread. But as well as that, mix in with some of the other diverse foods which can help support ourselves. My my mother would have, would swear on the Holy Bible that she never consumed garlic. <laughs> what, what, she, what she doesn't realize is what we put in the things that, she, that we fed her when she was visiting with us. Yes, I'm sure. The thing is, the, the thing that is, if you, in, in, within a garlic clove, there's a central sort of thin green, pale green strand. Right. And if you open the garlic and take that pale green out, that is what gives the garlic the longevity in terms of a of, of, of the scent of your breath. So if you remove that, it's a much better way to eat it. And then you crush what is remaining. Then it's, it's better for you, but doesn't doesn't mean that everybody else facing you 
disappears <laughs> 10 feet from you. So that's one tip. And not everybody likes it. I completely agree with that. And, you know, before I was going out to a dinner, I would not have raw garlic. But it is something which is very supportive. It's supportive of your immune system and it's supportive of your lungs. And all of us have been focused on how we can best support our lungs. Exactly. Um, I have a, another question. Um, Peter and I were talking about this. You have a um, recipe in here for medlar jelly. Yeah. Now, um, I... I'm not sure I understand the medlar tree or the medlar fruit. In Italy, they have this um, a funny little round fruit that has like brown spots on it. And I always thought they were spoiled until um, I saw a marzipan um, that replicated the, the these things which they called nosporus. Uh, and with the brown spots on it. And I looked it up at my Italian dictionary, and it said fruit of the medlar tree. Now, what is the fruit of the medlar tree? And is it the same thing I've seen in Italy? It probably is. I mean, they're very pretty trees, and they've got very lovely blossom and great autumn color and fruits, which are edible. You don't, it's a bit tart if you eat it raw, but it's really rather delicious in jellies and, and puddings. And you just need to eat it, you know, when you, you need to wait until it is brown. <laughs> and, oh, um, so that's um... when, so you need to wait till they, until there's no danger of, you know, you need to let it develop well into the autumn and pick in dry conditions. So they are, I think, completely delicious and they're different, that's all. I mean, I think we, our ancestors at different um, fruits and desserts and perhaps more diverse foods than we did. And I think it's fun to plant things which um, which you can't necessarily buy in a supermarket. Exactly. Are really important too. And it's, it's, then they are delicious. They're not an acquired taste. They're simply delicious. But you need to cook them, as I suggest, and make a jelly, and then they'll stay for ages. It's fantastic in stews or, you know, you could add it to cottage pie or whatever else you're making or cooking. It's, 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 it's slightly sweet and it has a slight overtaste of stewed apples. It's delicious. They're absolutely delicious. Well, I think the most useful recipe in your book is baked three cheese souffle because how many <laughs> times have we had them collapse just as we're about to serve them? Oh, I know. Well, I completely agree. And because our kitchen is so far from from where we eat, from the dining room, it's a really good recipe, actually. So it's quite fun. <laughs> So that's why I did the funny photograph of, of, of Paul the chef handing the souffle to Louis, our butler, and telling him to no, run. He's very elegant, <laughs> Louis. <laughs> he is very elegant, is he? And, and Paul is great as well. But it's just encouraging them to run. And it's, you know, who doesn't love cheese? We all love cheese, don't we? Particularly you want something like this in, in the months like January and February, something which just it has kind of a lot of feel-good factor. But, you know, you could equally well serve it as a main course with a big green salad with a nice dressing. Right. And you don't, <coughs> excuse me, you don't really need anything else. Well, it's, it's a wonderful book. And um, listeners, the, the photographs are just going to make you so envious of, <laughs> of where uh, the, yeah, that these people lived. I mean, it's just beautiful, gorgeous. Oh, uh, again, the you. book is um, 
the seasons at High Clear, and it's uh, from Rizzoli, and they did a fine job of publishing it. Thank you. And for you Downton Abbey fans who are out there around the world, there, there, there is a real Countess of Carnarvon because she's here on the program. <laughs> thank you very much. <laughs> well, thank you for taking time to talk to us. And um, You are very kind. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you. All righty. Thank you so much for calling. Thank you very much. All righty. Podcasting services for On The Menu Radio are provided by ASP Station, www.aspstation.net. Welcome back, and wasn't uh, the Countess wonderful? And so is our next guest, I mean, with the name like William Royce Weaver, you're bound to be an icon of your times, <laughs> or of all times. Anyhow, um, we're going to talk to him about all of his heritage, veggies, he's, and fruits. He's, he's very many activities. He what? I said he's very many activities, including, what is he called, the Roundwood Collection? Well, that's his, yeah. And, uh, yeah. So, and, uh, so and, uh, see, seeds, savers, and everything. He's, he's a wealth of information. Anyhow, we enjoy talking to him. Let's listen to him. Welcome back, William Weaver. Um, we, we interviewed you before, um, and talking about heirloom, heirloom recipes, or heirloom, yeah, heirloom vegetables, I guess. Yes. And here you have a follow up. It's called, Flavors from the Garden, Four Seasons of Heirloom Vegetable Recipes. And uh, I told you before, I was fascinated with this book, and I read it cover to cover um, and loved it. So, um, Well, thank you very much. Yeah. So it's it's something to really explore. I thought I knew um, a lot about vegetables and fruits, but I realized how much there was still... To learn, you oh, mentioned an, things I didn't know at all. <laughs> right. It, it, actually, it's an untouched world. There's, it's, it's sort of a rabbit hole once you get into it. Yeah. Um, we we interviewed somebody who's involved with the Lost Apple Project. You know oh, about yes. that? Yes, yeah, I know lost. about that. Right. Yeah. That's a good project, by the way. Oh yeah. Yeah. Because I'm I'm one of those people who really doesn't like the the kind of commercial apples we get in the stores, and uh, I have to go up to Lancaster County to uh, to to find my my heritage apple uh, breeds from the 18th century, and it's um, you know they're wonderful. They absolutely have different flavors altogether. Oh yeah. Now, now where are you, William? You say you go up to Lancaster. I'm in um, I'm located in uh, Devon, Pennsylvania. Uh, okay. Don't and know that is uh, actually 15 miles due west of City Hall, Philadelphia. Oh, really? Okay. I'm I'm on a hill uh, to the north of me in the valley is Valley Forge Park National okay. Park. Okay. I've been there. Yeah. I took my mother there and all things. Yes. Yeah. Well, it's not far from here. In fact, yeah. I live on the corner of Valley Forge Road and Old Lancaster Road. So. 
um, this house that I live in was connected with the Valley Forge and all of that history. <laughs> yeah, to tell us, I'm not sure I quite understand uh, what Rockwood is. Tell us about that. Well, uh, actually, the Roughwood Seed Collection uh, takes its name from the house, and the house uh, was built in 1805 as a tavern called the Lamb Tavern. And uh, that operated until uh, into the 1860s, and then uh, the railroad went in between Philadelphia and um, you know the West, went to ha- first to Harrisburg and then Pittsburgh, and so it it basically killed all of the um, the traffic along the the Lancaster Turnpike, which is what made all the taverns thrive in this region. So uh, the house then became a uh, private residence uh, in succession for a series of Philadelphia, wealthy Philadelphia owners who used it as a summer home. Okay. And one and one of them was Thomas Alexander Biddle, a very famous oh, banker. Oh, I know the Biddle, yeah. sure. Yep, he owned the yeah. house. And um, he is the one who gave it the name Roughwood because he had an ancestor, I think, in southern Scotland who had an estate called Roughwood, and so okay. he named it after that. So there is a, a Roughwood in Scotland. But he, the, the funny thing is um, he bought the property um, as a love nest for his mistress. <laughs> this is true of a lot of the French kings, you know. <laughs> oh, yes. Oh, this is the other Philadelphia story. <laughs> yeah, this is the other. You know, I lived in Philadelphia for seven years. And, yeah. yeah. And uh, I, I know that about the other. I mean, I have other Philadelphia stories, too. <laughs> oh, sure. <laughs> but, but William, so, you're, not, you're, you're not as far west as Lancaster. Oh no, Lancaster is sixty miles due west of me. So it's really, um, it's really funny. I should, I should, you'll be, you'll be entertained. When, when I was first in the United States on a on a business trip, my first weekend over because nobody, nobody I was working with was working over the weekend. So I said, well, where shall I go? And they said, well, Lancaster County is really kind of nice. Why don't you go there? And I, I had no idea why. But I, but I, dutiful, I dutifully drove my rental car to Lancaster County and was suitably amazed because, <laughs> it was, because, because it was the planting season. So all the Amish families with their three-horse plows oh, yes. were, were out on the dark brown dirt. And some, somehow or other, somebody told me it was the most fertile dirt on God's earth. <laughs> and, it, it, and, it, and it certainly looked like it. Yes. Well, it's good limestone soil, so uh, that that's one of the secrets to that agriculture, yes. Well, so this place we interviewed earlier, the, the castle, is uh, partly in limestone country, England. Um, oh, yeah. Well, well you, that's you, good soil. Yeah, well, you, you love rhubarb, and uh, Peter comes from uh, Yorkshire, in, close, in close the UK, to, oh yes, rhubarb, I, close to the rhubarb triangle. I yes, indeed, I've been to Yorkshire, and oh, uh, you, you've been to the rhubarb triangle. I probably have, but I, you know, I was there in March. The, the rhubarb wasn't doing too well at that point, and they were having snow flurries. But I remember 
acres and acres, fields and fields of sheep. <laughs> oh, yeah, there's sheep everywhere. Well, well, well the, the, the room belt's in a slightly different area, but not, but not too far away. If you, saw the, if you saw the sheep and you looked over the, over the hill, you probably would see the rhubarb. Oh, yes. Well, to, to kind of demonstrate what I'm saying about how this book is a, re, a, a revelation, um, I certainly know what rhubarb is. Um, but you love it, and, and you wrote an ode to rhubarb. Explain all the variances you could have in, in rhubarb. Well, the, the reason the rhubarb um, is in the book is because the book is, is divided up into sort of seasonal right. chunks, and it works that way. And I have uh, several uh, heritage varieties of rhubarb, and some of them are one of the earliest things to come up in the spring. And that's and that to me is one of the first gifts of the garden. And there's Victoria, and there's well, um, uh, strawberry rhubarb. Yeah, that was one that was interesting. Yeah, I mean, I wondered. Because it's not accidental that you have strawberry rhubarb pie, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> well, I I have it because my grandfather had it, and uh, so I I grew up with rhubarb in the spring. A rhubarb pie, rhubarb strawberry pie, rhubarb wine, um, rhubarb beer, <laughs> you name it. Um, uh-huh. We 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 did everything. My grandfather also had bees so um he used his honey to make his rhubarb wine which was very special to me i remember that as a child mm-hmm. and um i think that was my first buzz <laughs> uh, well i mean i inherited a whole bunch of, of rhubarb plants and i didn't know the first thing about growing them and unfortunately, they all just died. I mean, they oh, just yeah. went away over the years. I didn't know you had to cut back that center. Yes, you, if you actually with the Victoria, which gets very tall flowers, if you keep cutting those flower stalks down, you can keep the Victoria rhubarb going until November, until frost. So wow. you can keep it going all summer. The trick to rhubarb is that it's a heavy feeder. It wants very rich soil and lots of hummus. So it's um, uh, it's it's one of those plants. Well, my grandfather had racing pigeons, so he fertilized his okay um, his rhubarb with rotten pigeon manure, and they and the rhubarb thrived. So um, that's one of the secrets. Horse manure is what a lot of the the, the, the Amish and uh, Mennonite farmers use to fertilize their rhubarb in it. It also is important to separate it, to keep dividing it from year to year and not Yeah, not that's have what it. I didn't do either. Yeah, if you it have it for died. 20 years on the same spot, it's not good. You have to keep moving it around because it likes fresh, a fresh location. <laughs> Let's put it that way. What I find interesting is that plants automatically move themselves around. <laughs> It's like walking trees, you know what I mean? <laughs> yes. <laughs> well, so, but you you um, have contributed a number of seeds to the seed savers, haven't you? Oh, yes. I 
I actually think it's well over 400 different varieties. It could be more than that. Um, mm -hmm. I was very active in uh, Seed Savers Exchange, and then I had to take a break from that to get my Ph.D. in Ireland. So um, I, I, I didn't get back into it as deeply as I was back in the 90s, let's put it that way. But we're still... We're still going strong, and the seed collection is a non-profit, you know, yeah. 501c3. So uh, we have big plans, and hopefully um, down the road we'll be able to buy some land and, and um, have the farm that we need uh, with uh, the greenhouses and everything. Uh, right now... Oh, great. Right now, rough, the gardens here at Roughwood are... Are fallow, so we haven't we haven't done any planting here. But we've got growers in different parts of the country, and they supply the seeds for the collection. So it's all it's all under control. It's just yeah. a, a great network of of, of um, contacts, very very helpful people supporting the cause. I might add, but the book was was something that was we were going to publish, by the way, um, last year. But of course, COVID intervened. Yeah. And we didn't think that it would be a very good idea to bring the book out um, during that horrible period. Uh, what we learned, however, COVID had a, an interesting effect on people in the seed business because people wanted to grow their own food. And so okay. while the restaurants were going belly up, anybody with seeds and plants to sell were doing a land office business. So. It was a very weird topsy turvy situation, but it, it was, certainly it was. Yeah, but it, you know, there's hard work in in seeds, and it's a very specialized uh, thing, and um, so that that was the good news. <laughs> if there's a silver lining in this plague, yeah. <laughs> that was the good news. <laughs> we know when we were in Peru, we went to the Potato Institute or whatever. Oh yes. I envy you because I want to go there. That that place oh. is fascinating. Isn't it incredible? The funny part about it is we I don't think either either Anne or Peter and a lot of the other people who were with us when when we toured the, the research program for potatoes, I don't think we knew that potatoes can actually be grown from seed. Oh yes. Yeah, <laughs> because, because, because well, I, my mother always just did the eyes, you know. My grandmother right. always did the eyes. No, no, yeah. I, I've done that. I mean, the the potato plant gets a little thing that's green. It looks a bit like an eggplant, uh, unripened, and it gets seeds inside that are look. They look like tomato seeds, by the way, and that's how you create new varieties. Right. Well, they they do an enormous amount of that. It, they they it, ship all over the world. They see oh, the yes. people growing everywhere. They had an amazing research project going on while while we were there. It might have been going on for a long time, but the the issue to be addressed was the fact that, that a lot of Peruvians live in very mountainous country, and the only thing that will grow that they can eat is potatoes. So a mono, a mono diet like that has a terrible downside because if, 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 if care isn't taken, there's no, not sufficient nutrition for the people to be able to even survive. So they were working on, I think iron was one of the 
Zinc, I thought, was one of them. Zinc oh, yes. Were two, were two of the things they were trying to find varieties of potatoes that they could give away the seeds to that, that were rich in zinc and iron or copper or whatever it was. Oh, that's that, uh, Actually, I never thought about that, the downside to the potato diet. But there are other plants that that they that they can grow up in the in the high Andes that uh, would supplement that. But anyway, um, one of the problems with the Peruvian potatoes is that they're close to the equator and high altitude, so they're day length sensitive and altitude sensitive, which means that some of them, well, many of them are very difficult to grow in the United States because mm -hmm. we're out of that zone and. Um, it takes maybe 10 or 15 years to get those potatoes to acclimate to... Yeah, they, were, they, were do, they, were doing, they were doing a project that involved floodlighting the fields oh, of yes. potatoes. To trick so, them about day length, yes. Yeah. yes. To trick them, yeah, exactly, to trick them that this was a good, this was a good growing environment for them. Well, there's they a, stick it out. You know, there is a potato that I dearly love. It's small. It's It's means egg yolk potato. It's a little tiny round yellow potato from yes. uh, Colombia. And I we grew we got beautiful uh seed you know, potatoes. Oh. We worked with that for five years and it just kept going downhill. That was so difficult. Well one of the reasons we want to get greenhouses is that we would like to do some breeding like that on our own. And um You have to have patience. I mean this oh. is the thing We've interviewed um, apple breeders, for example, and you know you you go twenty years before you come up with something that's I, sustainable. This is absolutely true. Um, our seed collection manager Stephen Smith um, is, is very good with genetics. He's playing with corn right now, but really. Um, what you say is true because I think gardeners and apple tree breeders we've got to live to be 300 I know. <laughs> to get the work done <laughs> yeah, we've got to train parrots they live a long time yes. <laughs> well you know back to your book i mean where you have some not only interesting produce but you have interesting recipes now um i came across this one stir-fried lettuce with spring peas that i couldn't even believe um, I had one episode with um, lettuce cooking lettuce that had to do with some kind of a, a, a it was what's the name of that Casey somebody Casey uh, that thought he had, uh, he had this whole alternate universe kind of thing going and he oh, had yes. all kinds of funny healing he was popular at, in the hippie days. You know who I'm talking about? I know who you're talking about, yes. I can't think of the name either. But, but he, had, uh, he had steamed lettuce as one of his potions. It's supposed to calm you down and, and, and um, cheer you up. Uh, I, I, I don't know. Where, did you find, where do you find these recipes, stir-fried lettuce? With the stir-fried lettuce is actually delicious, um, uh, particularly if you work quickly and you don't kill the lettuce, so to speak, and turn it into a yeah. green blob. Um, actually, I, I experiment all the time with cooking, and I, I, I look at – I've got cookbooks from all over the world. So 
I'll see what they're doing in India or Thailand or South America. And um, stem lettuce was cooked years ago anyway as a vegetable. Uh, chi- the Chinese have stem lettuce. The ancient Egyptians did. Yeah. So, you, you know, one sort of one idea seeds another, and we just play around with it. The idea of the book was like, okay, now that you're growing heritage vegetables, what do you do with them, and how do, how can you turn this into a, um, a, a you know an interesting meal? And make mm-hmm. make all your labor in the garden worthwhile. So that's sort of where we came from. And with l- lots of lettuces, really good, sturdy leafed lettuces come up in the spring, and some of them are good winter lettuces. So I thought, mm-hmm. let's start there. Let's see what we can do. And and look at the beautiful photographs you have here. Like I'm looking at the feast of the corn mother with the black and gold. Oh, you should market that in Pittsburgh with our sports teams, <laughs> black and gold. <laughs> oh, yes, I didn't think about that. You know, that corn <laughs> is from South America, and it's a native corn to the tribes down there. And um, it's a wonderful corn because it can be used as sweet corn when it's young. It can be used as flower corn, um, and it also can be used to grind um, for, like, grits. So it, it's got all sorts of uh, good uh, culinary properties. It also ripens in 60 days. Oh, so um, for the farmer, this is terrific news and uh, because he can get several crops out of it. And, it. and I'm saying several crops. He could probably at least get two or three, even in Pittsburgh, if they planted, you know, in succession from mm-hmm. the end of May until, let's say, middle of July. Easy. Yeah, I, get, I, I have bronze fennel, and I get a lot of use out of that. Oh, you yeah. You can use so many different stages and so forth. <laughs> Bronze fennel. I mean, we uh, the people that come here to weed curse it because it takes over. Oh, I know. Which, and I keep giving it away. <laughs> Spread it. But, the Johnny Appleseed of bronze fennel. <laughs> but, that's, but that's okay because, you know, if there's a lot of it, well, just find good uses for it. That's, it's good with fish, by the way. Yes, it is. I mean, I, I use it all the time. Of course, I have tons of it. Um, the, uh, we were talking about, um, we are talking to somebody in, was it Wisconsin? And uh, you talk about prolific. She said in, in, this, in August, you, you don't ever leave the car windows down uh, when you park your car because you'll come back to find a whole carload of zucchini <laughs> oh yes <laughs> true so, and something here that's coming back um, it, it, I was absolutely shocked to find out what people were charging for it was garlic scapes oh, I love garlic yes. scapes but garlic scapes are on the cover of the book um, yeah. you know year, years ago um, uh, the uh, when I was writing for a Mother Earth News, they said we've got a problem. We've got growers who s- sell garlic, but they also have to cut the scapes off, and they can't sell them because it's, nobody knows how to cook them. So I did a big article for them on various ways to deal with garlic scapes because I was in of all places. What was it? Slovenia. 
and um, on the coast of, at Ist, in Istria. And yeah. I, was, I went into a village with a group of people. They were having a festival. And what were they serving? Garlic skates. <laughs> that was my first taste. And it was oh. wonderful. So I went into this completely converted. And um, the recipe that I use in the book uh, is an adaptation of a recipe that I came across in a village in Cyprus. So, well, you know, I, I went online to, to see what they recommend about uh, trimming it. And they trim it um, online. The recipe calls for trimming that thickened part off. And I don't think you're supposed to do that. You have it on in yours. Yeah, the um, actually, the the flower head part of the of the scape has this long piece of papery greenness to it. I trim that off a little bit because it doesn't cook tender. But uh-huh. then the base of the stem can be tough sometimes. Oh yeah, now that, that I trim. Yeah. Yeah, that but that depends on also when you pick them and and the variety of garlic because the rocambols give tougher stems than some of the others. Okay, all right. So it's, you know, there's a whole, there's a whole art to that. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I was fascinated with your lemon blush pie as well. Oh, the lemon blush tomato is wonderful. And the Pennsylvania Dutch always, it, it, one of the summer August pies that I remember was, t- you know, yellow tomato and, uh, yellow tomatoes and peaches cooked together in a pie. And uh, so I thought, okay. That sounds wonderful. Well, you know what? The photographers fell in love with it. (laughs) They ate it. They ate it almost as soon as they took the picture for the book. (laughs) Yeah, now I'm I'm looking at these uh, chilies you have here called Merken. Merken? Oh, Merken, yes. Merken. And they look a lot like hatch chilies. Are they well, they're uh, they're really called goat horn chilies in in Chile, the country where they come from, um, and they're smoked a bit uh, to make the pa- the you know the powder. Um, we we have seeds for two two or three different varieties. Um, Fortunately, my housekeeper was from Chile, so every time she went to visit oh, family, nice. she would she would bring me another another variety, and um, so oh, I really that. like that. I like that pepper because it's spicy, it has good flavor, and the heat doesn't you know blow you away. Let's right. put it that way. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I, I did a, um, a a chili tasting, and and then we all had this had all describe the flavors. And we weren't allowed to use the word heat at all. Yeah. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so. I'll mind you, the lady, the lady who organized the contest was kind of weird. Well, <laughs> Frontera Grill. <laughs> she, she, shall, she, shall be, she shall be nameless. Yeah, well, I already <laughs> named it. Here's another yeah. dilemma I have here. Um, pickled daylily buds. Um, I I can't figure out how you could use buds and then give up the flowers. I mean, you have to grow a lot of them then, like three times the usual amount. I know. Well, when you have an overabundance of daylilies, this isn't a problem. Just remember, if you go into a Chinese um, grocery store, they're going to have dried 
daylily buds for sale. So uh, this isn't kind of a, a, a new strange idea. It's been okay. around. Um, pickling them is another thing. They, they're, they're unique. That's the only word I can say. It's unlike any other pickle because it's a flower, first of all. And uh, if, you, if you have hybrids that bloom, I think they bloom again in the fall, um, you can do the spring and yeah, then you that, get your flowers I wonder flowers about later. that because they're, they're doing that in my front garden. Yeah. I mean, I, so, I keep thinking that they're making a mistake, but I guess it's me. No, no, there know. are hybrid types now that bloom a second time if the, you know, if the well, fall that's is what warm. I'm getting. That's what you've got. So you don't have to, to, to lose your flowers. But mm -hmm. isn't it also, uh, look at it this way. All right, you didn't you didn't um, enjoy the flowers in what May June, but here you've got them pickled in January, so you can have your flowers another way. Yeah. Now the um, you, you it was new to me to understand the, the various kinds of shallots that there are differences in shallots. I thought a shallot was a shallot. It was stupid me, but this. What about this recipe for shallots sautéed with dried figs? Now, that's intriguing. Oh, that's wonderful, absolutely wonderful, because when you're um, sautéing the shallots, um, you, you're, you're bringing out the sugars in the, in the, um, in the shallots themselves, and then they complement the figs. So it's, um, it's, that is absolutely uh, a I'm winner if, if, you're going to do, if you're going to have that as an hors d'oeuvre at a party. It goes beautifully with cheese. Oh, that's wonderful. We just received all these product samples from a, a startup company in, um, in Spain. Uh, where did they say they were from? Their, their... Okay. And, and, of course, they had a lot of... Um, um, a, a lot of um, what do you call it? What was it? The, yeah, a lot of quinces. Oh yes, I love quinces. And I never knew you could do so many things with quinces. Oh yes, totally. Uh, quince applesauce is good. Just quince sauce, but I mix uh -huh. it with apples and make my applesauce that way. Also, quince paste. You can do candies oh, with it. Yes. On and on, so, quinces are great. And if you cook them with, with pears, I had quince trees, but I had to cut them down because they got fire blight, and it, I just couldn't I couldn't. What do did it. they get? Fire blight. It's a, a disease that attacks um, apples and, and uh, oh, okay. orchard fruit. Yeah, yes. Now, um, you can cook sunflowers? Oh, yes. The little green... Un, unopened sunflower buds taste yeah, exactly like artichokes. <laughs> what? Yes. Well, that doesn't have anything to do with this myth, which is a real misnomer, because we have um, um, Jerusalem artichokes. We talk about taking over. <laughs> you never can get rid of them. No, um, no, I mean, I mean real misnomer. artichokes. I, I don't mean Jerusalem artichokes. I mean that the sunflower buds taste like the artichoke. Yeah, no, what I'm Green saying artichoke. is that Jerusalem artichoke oh. is a misnomer because um, oh, yes. they girasole, which is a, yes. a sunflower in Italian, 
Right. And so that's when they have a flower like that, that's when they started calling them um, Jerusalem artichokes. Right. When they, they don't taste like artichokes at all. No, that's, that is a misnomer. And, but, the, but the nice thing about Jerusalem artichokes is once you plant them, you'll have them forever. That's what I said. You can't get rid of them. We, we do have them forever. <laughs> and all 10 feet tall of them, we, we do forever. Yes. <laughs> well, the, if you the, cut down the flower stalks when they're blooming, cut them down halfway, you'll get bigger oh, Jerusalem artichokes. That's a good idea. I don't know why I didn't figure that out. <laughs> Yeah, I was know, focusing on the fact that you can't harvest them till until after the first frost. No, if you if you cut them back like that, all the strength you know is going into the flowers. That mm-hmm. that stops that, so it it doesn't it the energy goes back into the tubers. You'll mm-hmm. double the size of your artichokes that way. Oh, good. Well, that's a good thing to know. Now, and here is something else I never knew about: is the um, the, the yellow moly the the um, we we grow tomatillos. In fact, they came back again this year without replanting. And, and, they and will reseed. That's true. Yeah, um, yeah. but, but it, it waited till the summer is almost over to do that. And oh, you know, yeah. I don't know what to do with them. So. Well, but anyhow, you make warming, yellow mole, that, which would certainly be um, uh, certainly would be. Um, Stunning, wouldn't it? it oh, it is. It, it's absolutely delicious. I love those Mexican um, preparations because they're easy to make and they're very flavorful. I, we need more of that kind of food in our diet anyway. Yeah, you should talk to uh, Rancho Gordo. <laughs> <laughs> you know him? Yes, yes. They've Steve contacted Sando? me. Oh, yeah. yes. So... And, and I didn't understand the saffron moon. I didn't understand that at all. I thought the saffron came out of crocuses. Yes. The saffron moon is, is just a Pennsylvania Dutch expression for the full moon that time of year. Okay, because it looks like corn growing in the photograph. Oh, yeah, I know. I really wanted a picture of, of actually the sometimes the moon does look yellow that time of year but uh it's just saffron moon is an expression and because the saffron i don't know how it is out in your area but it normally blooms around here on october the 10th or right now really <laughs> yes huh. i don't i'm always think of it the saffron was a crocuses in the spring no the saffron is a fall blooming crocus it's totally different you can't oh. eat those you can't eat the the spring crocuses; they'll kill you. They're toxic. <laughs> uh, oh my God! Thank God I didn't try. <laughs> no, no. I know I planted some um, saffron um, crocuses, though, but I don't know which are which, so I shouldn't eat that. I mean, no, um, no. I I would I would get uh, if you're going to grow saffron, I would be sure that you're getting the right kind, that it's um, you know crocus sativus, the edible crocus. Um, because that's the one that produces the saffron that we use in cookery, not the others. Now, the the other thing that I wanted to, to um, make that looks wonderful is your buckwheat nut cake. Oh, that yes, that buckwheat nut cake is is a Polish based recipe, and um, I had something like it in Poland years ago, and I thought that's brilliant because. Buckwheat is nutty to begin with, and um, 
it it makes a delicious and really quite healthy uh, dessert. Yeah, we use buckwheat as a cover crop on the mm-hmm. in the yeah, in most people gardens. do. Yeah. Yes, and so what to do with all this extra buckwheat? So I I cook with buckwheat quite a bit. That's huh. the reason for that because it's part of our uh, our harvest cycle. Huh. Well. Anything further that we haven't touched? I mean, the, the whole, here's your quince and celeriac quince yeah. Um, anything that you think that we should also talk about from the book? Because it's, I mean, it's just one recipe is more creative than the next, and it sounds so delicious. Well, uh, as I say, the book was a labor of love, but it was, everything was triple tested and, um, uh, because we, we postponed it due to COVID, I was able to spend a lot more time on the recipes and really get them up to, you know, up to par. And uh, I, I'm really proud of the way this book turned out, and I hope oh, that anybody, anybody who gardens will find this very useful to keep very close by in the kitchen. Because if you run out of ideas, you don't have to use exactly the same ingredients that I call for, but you can use similar ones and create your own um, your own little um, heirloom recipes. Well, I mean, they're, they're really, they're beautiful. Uh, they sound delicious. And uh, I'm, I'm going to make what I told you I'm going to make. <laughs> okay. Well, um, you, you were already on your next book or not? Oh, actually, I've got five books finished, but not yet out with publishers. So I've been busy. I, I decided if I have to live in a bubble with COVID, I'm going to make this <laughs> make this time <laughs> useful. So I have a collection of Pennsylvania Dutch fairy tales, which is coming out next year. Oh, that'd be have, interesting. Oh yes, we have quite a few other things lined up. Well, it's always a pleasure talking to you, and you have so many wonderful ideas. Well, and, thank you. Uh, yeah, and um, I, I wish you could come and cook some of these things for me. Yeah, I might well, mention, by the way, that if if you're not a gardener, uh, you do include a list of, of, of sources to get some of these ingredients if you don't. Oh, yeah, indeed. Them, and know. if you want the seeds, you can always contact us at the Roughwood Seed Collection, and we'll if we don't have it, we'll get you to the person who does. That's very easy to do. That's great. I keep trying to get that. What, what's that ice lettuce? I, I can never buy seeds for ice lettuce. Oh. Do you have hmm. that? Yes, I know the lettuce. I think yeah, we have I it in the get... collection, but I don't know whether we're growing it right now. They were growing it in California at, um, what's the name of the, the gardener, the, the uh, rabbit? That... I forget now. How many she she was she was making it for, she was growing it for Manresa. Yeah, for Manresa and she had it. Yeah. She, she got, the ice she got plant. It, she got it from she got it from a French chef and it was it wasn't legal. He wasn't legal, <laughs> we couldn't ever get any so. Well, well we have Im, we have import permits, so we're we can we can deal in international seeds if we want to. So that's that's one good thing. That's good. Except yes. that you haven't found the person who's growing it, I guess. Yes. Well, again, wonderful talking to you. I'm glad we could touch base and, and keep us in mind with your next book. 
Yes, and thank you for interviewing me. This has been a great pleasure, and say hello to Pittsburgh. (laughs) (laughs) I will. (laughs) Okay. That's a wrap for today, and uh, hopefully we'll have more to bring you next week. Maybe we'll we'll have the Queen next week. (laughs) You never thought of that, huh? No, I don't think so. She's gotten back on her duties. Exactly. But we're not cutting back on our duties. We will be here same time, same place next week, and we hope you will be too. And until then... Bye-bye.